0: The pen is mightier than the sword. The great unwashed. Pursuit of the almighty dollar. These are phrases we have all heard, and they come from a single source nineteenth century English writer and politician, Edward George Earl Lytton Bulwer Lytton. Bulwer Lytton was a successful novelist, poet, and playwright. His political accomplishments included nine years in Parliament serving as the British colonial secretary, and being offered and turning down both a lordship of the admiralty and the crownship of Greece, king. Today, he is remembered for writing the worst opening sentence in the history of the English-speaking peoples. Here it is. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents. Except at occasional intervals, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets, for it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. Da, da. Episode 54 reviews articles by Jeff Snyder covering the Treasury Inflation-Protected Securities Curve Inverting, the lifespan of a post-2008 reflation, the curious appreciation of the Chinese currency, as well as how Fed officials in 1937 convinced themselves of an impending inflationary storm in the middle of an economic depression. None of those articles open in the Bulwer-Lytton style precisely the opposite and yet many some a few someone and 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 yet this podcaster wonders how might a euro dollar university educated author open their novel it was a dark and stormy depression bank reserves fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals, when they were checked by a breath of reflation which swept up economists, for it is in the Eccles building that our scene lies, rousing along the academics and fiercely inflating the faith in a recovery that struggled against the darkness. It is said that that is the worst opening sentence to a novel in English literature, ladies and gentlemen. And they have a contest every year where they ask people from around the world to submit fictional opening lines that are awful, awful. I love it. And I'm gonna read out some of them during the show. The point is, I bring this up because Jeff Snyder, head of global research, Valhambra Partners, wrote the opposite of in Edward Bulwer-Lytton's line. He opens so strongly, I love this line, I can't wait to find out what's gonna happen. Jeff, you wrote, there is a precedence for this, though not to this extent, it has reached a record.
1: Jeff, I wanna know what's gonna happen next. Tell us the story, what are we talking about? Well, first I thought you were gonna uh, you're gonna put me in the same category as the poor guys because I know uh, anybody who writes for any limited amount or even a small amount will tell you opening lines are tough and more often than not you're gonna write crappy ones than good ones. The good ones are few and far between. So I think we could probably put a whole show in you know really bad bad writing just in my catalog alone so i thought that's where you were going emil i would never do
0: i would if i would do that (laughs) maybe we should but i would warn you ahead of time i wouldn't do that to you without warning maybe the next episode but i love this opening i wanted
1: to know whoa a record in finance what's going on it's kind of an obscure record but i think it's an important one because it's it's something that we're all talking about we're all hearing about which is Is inflation about to be unleashed upon the world for the first time in a very long time? And when we start with some of the, you know, more visible indications like copper, so we've talked about that before, oil prices, which just seem to have uh, no boundaries anymore, it looks like, hey, something's really going on here. There's an inflationary monster lurking. And oh, by the way, it's in the bond market. We're starting to see TIPS inflation break evens break out to not just multi-year highs, which don't mean as much as they sound, but in the five-year break-even, it's broken out to a decade high, which kind of sounds like, okay, something's really going on here. So what is it that's, are we seeing inflation finally escape? Are we seeing all this money printing finally coming home to roost, pent up demand, all these other kinds of things, other kinds of issues, which seem to be pointing in the direction, or at least the opposite of direction of where we've been stuck over the last 13 or so years. Let me read out to you the 2020 winner of
0: the award, the grand prize. Are you ready? Her dear John missive flapped unambiguously in the windy breeze, hanging like a pizza menu on the doorknob of my mind. (laughs) I love it. Forgive me. I don't know if
1: I've ever written anything that awful. Probably something close, but not that bad. This is a masterpiece by Lisa Kluber of San Francisco,
0: California. Ah. Jeff, you mentioned oil, you mentioned tips. We've talked about it in previous shows. Just very quickly, tips, they're inflation protected securities, but not you know, inflation here. No, it's a specific consumer price index and the consumer
1: price index is tied to or reflects. Largely crude oil, yeah, it's, it's crude oil prices. So you would expect that if you're getting paid by the CPI, you're gonna pay close attention to what oil prices are doing because over the average average holding of whatever trade, treasury inpl- inflation protected security, that's what the treasury department is going to refund to you is what the CPI is on average over that period. So it makes sense that there's a close correlation between those two. And as oil prices have gone skyward over the last three or four months now, um, tips inflation break-evens have reflected that because of that CPI component. But where it starts to get a little interesting is that the closer in inflation break even say the five and two year have gone much higher than the longer run inflation expectations especially the 10-year and that's really where we get to we're talking about a record here what we're talking about as a record is that typically you would expect inflation expectations to be hierarchical and orderly they would be an upward sloping curve based on you know predicated on time so we would expect that the 10-year inflation expectation to be somewhat higher than the five-year, and then the five-year somewhat higher than the two-year, and so on and so on. So that there's, a there's a there's there's again, there's a hierarchy of inflation expectations that rise over time. But what we've seen since the early part of January is that as the five-year has, has followed along closely with oil, the 10-year has now lagged seriously behind to the point where it's upside down. Inflation expectations at the 10-year uh, break even are now significantly less than they are at the five year, which causes this, what I call inversion. It's not really an inversion, but it's, it's sort of an upside down situation that's exceedingly rare. And it's at a level right now that, that has never been seen before. Let me read another one, Jeff. When she walked into my office on that
0: bleak December day, she was like a breath of fresh air in a coal mine. She
1: made my canary sink. I think it's funny. <laughs> that think. was a good, actually for awful, that was good. And I think, you know, I think you talk about canary in a coal mine. I think that's what we're talking about here. That's an appropriately horrible quote there, because what we're seeing is that the 10 year is not consistent with the five year. And then we look at longer run inflation expectations in terms of, you know, the five year, five year forward rate, right? which is, a, which is really what the, uh, the, uh, the really drilled down, distilled version of long-run inflation expectations is, it has barely budged. I mean, yes, it's higher than it was last year, but it's still within this post-2014 trough, which suggests that long-run inflation expectations have not changed, despite the run-up in commodity prices, especially oil prices and short-term inflation expectations, which given now this inversion in the tips break-even curve, tells us that No, this isn't an inflationary condition. This is something else.
0: And Jeff, you mentioned that this is not the only, not the first time that it's happened, this inversion, but it's been a long time. You say that it's uh, going back to the middle of the first decade of this millennium was when we last saw this and like the middle two thousands, this inverted tip situation suggests the same thing, but in reverse.
1: What, what did we see then and what are we seeing now? Well, back then in the middle of 2000s, when the, when the 10 year or the five year uh, tips break even got above the 10 year, it was based on oil prices. Then too, if you remember that period in time, oil prices were rapidly moving higher and it was the first time we had encountered a hundred dollar oil or getting close to a hundred dollar oil. We didn't get there until later, but still rapidly rising oil prices. And so you would think that, okay, here's an inflation expectation that's going to build and and sustain itself. But what the tips market was actually saying is, yeah, oil prices are rising. There'll be some inflationary impacts in the short run. But overall, that does not change inflation expectations in the long run because the market was saying this is a short-term phenomenon and that largely nothing fundamentally had changed about the economy, which back then was a bubbly but yet somewhat normal economy that had a higher level of inflation expectations, but not an exceedingly high level. So in other words, even as short term inflation expectations rose, longer run inflation expectations were relatively well anchored in a plausible, rather uh, benign position. Whereas today we see the same kind of thing happening, oil prices are jumping up, but longer-run inflation expectations aren't moving which suggests that they aren't changing but now we're not in a normal economy we're in a well below normal economy a disinflationary economy which is the market telling you yes commodity prices are rising but we don't expect that to have any longer longer run impact because fundamentally yet again it doesn't change the outlook and ladies
0: and gentlemen the article that we were referencing right now is called tips tipping over but not that way, and it was posted on the 4th of March at Alhambra Partners. Jeff, I'm gonna to segue to another article that links part of our discussion here, but before I do, let me give you a dishonorable mention. She sauntered into his smoke-filled office with legs that, although they didn't go quite all the way to heaven, definitely went high enough for him to see that she was a giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> okay absurd. I love it. That might be
1: the best one yet.
0: (laughs) Oh, by the way, who was that from? Oh, they don't. It was Jarrett Dement in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Jeff, this is a good one that I haven't seen from you before in specific detail. We're now going to talk about the article reflation amplitude, important, but what about frequency? And well, just kind of tell the audience, what, we, what do we usually talk about when we talk about reflation? And then what did you look at? Which perspective did
1: you take this time? Well, most of the time we focus on, okay, when we're specifically reflation in the bond market, specifically 10-year benchmark treasury yields, because the, those are kind of like the proxy for what's going on overall. What we usually focus on is how, how high will yields go? If they're if they're right now at 1.6%, will they get to 2%? What has it been like in the past? Where has the top in yields been over the last, you know, four or five reflationary episodes? Uh, and, and so what might, we, what might we discern about the historical experience and could that tell us something important about what's going on right now? But of course, there's another component to reflationary trends like anything else. There's also a time component, not just how high can yields possibly go, how high have they gone in the past, but how long does this inflation, uh, reflationary trends last? And that might be even, even, even more important question. You know, how long should we expect this to go on? Because, you know, are we in the, are we closer to the beginning? Are we closer to the end? Would we be surprised if it all turned around tomorrow and this reflation number four, if that's what it is, if that ends tomorrow, would that be, would that be completely out of line with historical precedents? That's, that's right. You ask, uh, two questions here. Would it
0: be unusual? If the current reflationary run was somehow brought to an end in the near future. Second, at the other end, from past experience, can we determine if there is some kind of maximum or a ticking clock? I'm going to pull up a graph where you you graph these, uh, you you measure, or you set them all on a similar index or time period, you set them all equal to zero. What does the zero represent? And then what do we see on each of the reflations? I'll pull up the I'll pull up the chart now.
1: Yeah, for simplicity's sake, we're we're just measuring the ten year treasury yield because again, it's 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 a probably the best proxy for what we're trying to get at. And what we're looking at is okay, if ten years is sort of our proxy for reflationary periods or even you know the opposite, if we set them to zero, the zero is simply where they hit their lowest yield. Mm-hmm. And it's, for in uh reflation one B, you can see it's October of two thousand ten, for reflation two, which followed it. It was May of 2013, the so-called taper tantrum that wasn't a taper or tantrum. <laughs> and then the current one actually bottomed out in last August, August 4th of 2020. What you see in these, these, these inflation, uh, reflationary episodes I've highlighted here, obviously, first of all, amplitude, they've got much higher than, much, much higher than we are uh, anywhere close to now. But in terms of time, you now these are relatively short reflationary periods. I mean, reflation 1B, what I call 1B is what came uh, from uh, October 2010 until early 2011. And that was the QE2 sort of episode. QE2 falls entirely within that range. And you can see, that was that was over within a matter of a few months. That's all it lasted. Now, in terms of amplitude, you can see the trend year treasury rose, you know, quite significantly, about 125 basis points. So it was a significant sell-off, but it didn't take all that long. And after February 8th, uh, treasury yields started to fall again. In fact, they would end up much, much lower f- over the next couple of years. Same thing with the uh, 2013 inflation number two. You see, again, it's a pretty substantial sell-off where rates started out you know, somewhere around one and a half and got up to a little bit over 3% by the end of 2013. And yet from that point forward, for the next uh, two and a half years, yields again started to fall. And that was, again, only a matter of a few months. So on the shorter end of the historical scale, in the post-crisis period what we see is that yeah reflations can be short and sharp and violent
0: and so you conclude as we end our article here you conclude at saying that it wouldn't be a surprise if this reflation suddenly stopped that sounds bad but then you come back and you say it could also continue. And that might be worse here. On the other hand, if there are no further serious monetary problems, this could go on for well more than a year, more than several years. And while the latter, what we're discussing, sounds like a much better proposition or a different one, in many ways, it's actually worse. I think that people might not appreciate. Why is it worse if this reflation continues on
1: for longer? Yeah, it's a reflection of our focus on the amplitude rather than frequency. But in the, in the long run, what matters is time. The amount of time we spent not recovering, not growing, not achieving actual uh, actual economic health is far worse than the, uh, you know, the amplitude of how, how much it gets in, in between. So when we go back, I mean, the perfect example is globally synchronized growth, reflation number three. That was the longest one. It lasted from the middle of 20, 2016 until almost the end of 2018. So, I mean, it was an extensive, really lengthy, um, um, reflationary period, but it, you know, all it did was squander that much in terms of time. We're talking about two plus years wasted on, you know, hearing about inflation, hearing about recovery, many people getting prepared for it. And then at the end of it was yet again, another false dawn. So it was it's, it's, it was wor- the worst case is more in terms of time than in fact the, the, the fact that it actually came up short because I think we knew it was going to come up short anyway. That last point, that's
0: the key, Jeff. It's not like it was two years of rip roaring good and then suddenly a shock threw us down. No, throughout, starting, well, throughout, but at least from towards the end of 2017, things started to creak and crack that suggested it wasn't going to really happen. Uh, Jeff, let me read a final sentence from our contestants from 2020, all trying to get that grand prize of the worst sentence, fictional sentence, to an opening of a book. This is a dishonorable mention. Let me read this one. I thought you would appreciate this one. It's from Sue Doanen in England. Quote, The quantum flux field of the post-Einsteinian hyperdrive has gone asymptotically and we are in danger of approaching singularity as described by the Schrodinger equations, cried Captain Quirky, having no clue what he said only knowing it sounded sciency, secretly crossing his fingers behind his back and hoping there were no physicists reading because he didn't want any pedantic letters saying it was nonsense. <laughs>
1: a lovely... That was a good one. Yeah, contest. every time you, you sneak in an asymptote, that's always good. That's always, always potential for both confusion and comedy. Is there any confusion? Is there any comedy? Is there any... Are there
0: any asymptotes in China? That's where we're gonna turn to next in part two of this episode to see if some of the leading indicators, some of the monetary measures, what they're telling us about this current reflation. Jeff, let's talk about what's happening in China right now. We're gonna take a look at a monetary measure that's kind of, uh, what would the word be? Technic, sciency, sciency. It's very hard to follow. It's very shadowy difficult to understand. Thank goodness you're here. You're going to help us. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. And then we're going to look at PMI scores, which are easier to understand. Jeff, the article we're going to start out with is, what if CNY's backdoor still isn't a big enough exit? And this is on March 2nd. It was posted at Alhambra Partners. And Jeff, it's I guess it's supposed to be shadowy, right? Because this is something that the People's Bank of China is doing, but doesn't want us to know about it. Now, what is it that we see on the surface? What is it that's in the popular media? And then we're going to get into what you think
1: might be happening behind the scenes. Well, the biggest, the big discrepancy we're really investigating here is the fact that the Chinese currency has surged, surged. I mean, it's gone, it's gone almost vertical and been steadily vertical since around the end of May last year. And what that suggests is, hey, the world is getting better. The world is recovering. There's a flood of dollars heading inside into China, except the discrepancy is they're not showing up in the PBOC's balance sheet, which they really should. There really should be rising foreign reserve assets if that's what's going on in the currency. If the currency is being driven higher by dollar inflows, because there are more dollars available, especially for Chinese counterparties, they would end up on the central bank's balance sheet. As you can see, before we got into Eurodollar number three in 2014, that's exactly how it worked. More reserves, higher China, or, uh, the higher the CNY went, we traded against the dollar, because those two things went together. Dollar inflows, CNY up, world economy good, these things all happen together. And then since the middle of, since really around 2013, 2014, China has experienced only outflows, which aren't really outflows, it's just dollar tightness that the uh, authorities are trying to do their best to deal with, which we'll get into in a minute. Only that, you know, uh, again, they have the reverse. Not only the dollars flow out of the PBOC, out of China, suddenly CNY is no longer dependably rising. It starts to fall, except for it's been broken by these periods especially in 2017 and again in 2020, where we're wondering what's happening. Because you can clearly see CNY rebounds, but there's no dollars flowing onto the PBOC's balance sheet. So we're we're left to wonder what's going on here. Jeff, you made a beautiful graphic, but it's a little bit
0: hard to follow. But I think it's important to just uh, talk through it. Would you mind talking about what this is? Because I think it's very impressive. And it kind of gives us a sense of what should be happening. Is that right? And then we're gonna go through this article and look at this graphic again as to what is happening or how different uh, what would we, channels are being cut off. But what are these channels? What are we yeah, looking Yeah, we'll start
1: at? with sort of the pre-2014 framework. And what it really was is that, look, dollars wanted to find a home offshore. China was a good home for dollar investments because the Chinese wanted the dollars. Uh, dollar people, uh, banks that had dollars were looking for places to put them overseas, rapidly growing economies, so they were thought to be low risk high return, and so the euro dollar market supplied endless endless boundless sources of dollars for chinese purposes but but the way the Chinese system works is that look the, the CNY does not directly float against the dollar it 's a limited managed float, so that means that there are daily basis the the, the people 's Bank of China is you know taking in a lot of the dollars that show up on shore and so it's some of the dollars end up in the banking the uh chinese banking system some of the dollars end up in the pboc's balance sheet which then the pboc invests in u.s treasuries so there's sort of a harmony here more dollars go in the more we see it on the pboc's balance sheet and since foreign reserve is foreign reserves are the largest proportion of assets on the central bank balance sheet in china That's also the basis for internal currency, which is the right side of the graphic that you're showing, because the more foreign assets that are in the PBOC's hands, the larger the PBOC's balance sheet becomes, which means more liabilities. And on the liability side, obviously, is bank reserves and physical currency. So the more dollars that come in, the more good money in China, basically. And we know that it's working the way it's supposed to be working because they end up in the PBOC's hand, as well as CNY rising against the dollar an important point
0: here is that these offshore euro dollars eventually do support internal currency. That's very important because in 2013, that all changed and CNY started to head lower. And this is the graphic that you show us. And so what is happening here?
1: yeah and so it 's real you know why is Xinhua falling and that 's because the dollars no longer are flowing into China at the same rate that they were before they 've become more expensive or reasonably less uh, less less reasonable in terms of what what uh, what they're being offered into uh, Chinese hands so for something changes in the euro dollar market, which we saw throughout two thousand and thirteen, we saw all sorts of warning signs that dollars were becoming scarce and tight on global markets before we started seeing why to act, CNY f- actually falling. And so in 2014, now we have the Chinese currency dropping rather than rising. And which meant that the Chinese were not getting enough dollars. So what the PBOC decided to do was it had to intervene somehow because the bottom left part of the chart here is really maybe the most important part that's m- most misunderstood, which is that China needs dollars. And why do they need dollars? Because they participate in a global marketplace, and the U.S. dollar is the denomination for for participating in global trade, not just merchandise trade, but also financial flows. It intermediates merchandise trade. It intermediates financial flows all over the world. So the U.S. dollar denomination supplied by the euro dollar market and recycled and redistributed by the euro dollar market is this global reserve currency system, which everyone participates in, whether they want to or not. So confronted with a dollar shortage or a dollar shortfall, the PBOC had a choice, which was either let the, their corporate sector default on their dollar loans, which would have been catastrophic. They would have been sort of like an Argentinian sh- scenario, except for China. And is that they decided what we're s- they were going to sell for sell some of their or their foreign reserve assets and supply the dollars? The euro dollar market would not. And is that what we're
0: seeing in this? second or third version now where the lower, yeah. uh, left is, uh, what would we call that out tra- more transparent?
1: Yeah. So what we're seeing is that, that exact workaround. but the, there's a consequence and a downside to this bypass. If to see, if the PBOC is suddenly supplying dollars that the Euro dollar market will not, it has to sell its foreign reserve assets to cash liquidate them into some sort of usable form and then transfer the cash to their, you know, either their banking system's hand or the Chinese corporate sector's hand. We don't know. That's that's the other point here is we don't really know what the PBOC is up to, because unlike central banks around the rest of the world who are committed, at least in, in principle, to transparency, the communist Chinese are not. They kind of like the fact that they work and they operate in the shadows. So we don't really know what the PBOC is up to, except in this case, we do know they were selling the reserves, because we could see that see the reserves disappear from their balance sheet. We could see the reserves disappear from safe's uh, custody. So we knew that they were selling reserves and inferring that they were supplying dollars because of the dollar shortage as CNY only fell further and further and further. And now we come to the title of your piece that there's a oh, back, before door. we get there. Yeah, before we get there though, yes. remember the remember the downside of doing this. The consequence of this is like sort of quantitative tightening. We go back if you're selling reserves that means you're shrinking your balance sheet as a central bank and if you're shrinking your balance sheet that means you're also, you're not only shrinking your asset side you're shrinking your liability side and so you have to curtail currency growth physical currency growth you have to shrink the level of bank reserves which you're showing here in the chart uh the chart this chart right here so it was a monetary contraction that began in the euro dollar market that the pboc then chose to to import and internalize and its RMB system. And they did so because they thought, look, we'll do the dollar bypass. It seems like it might work. This might just be a temporary problem. We just need to buy some time and we'll offset the contraction and bank reserves in particular with you know, reserve requirement cuts and other internal things to try to boost RMB liquidity. And yet it didn't work. It didn't, really, it didn't really happen that way. And instead the consequences were pretty, were pretty severe. And at the end of the day, the Euro dollar problem wasn't a temporary one-off thing.
0: Right. I just pulled up a chart that shows the currency being issued and the year over year growth. And we can see on the bottom of that chart how much weaker. And that's terrible. Can you imagine for a terribly indebted nation to then issue less currency? It's, it's very deflationary.
1: Well, also in an in a, in a, in a economy like China and systems like China, a hand to hand currency is actually a much bigger part of the, uh, the commerce structure than it is in most, most Western countries. So, Curtailing physical hand-to-hand currency availability is an enormous constraint. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of, in some way, you have to sympathize with Chinese, you know, Chinese central bankers because they're basically saying, "What is our least worst option here? Do we put the brakes on the internal monetary growth and hope that we can offset it with RR cuts and things like that, in hopes that the dollar, the dollar system, this dollar shortage uh, goes away in, in due course, or do we just, you know, do we do something else?" Something like we talked about before, you know, last year, the Brazil strategy, where we do even more clandestine stuff. But guess what, Jeff?
0: We had moments in 2017 through 2018. And more importantly, we have them right now where the CNY is rising against the dollar and therefore the money should be coming in. At least that's what you're showing on this graph is you're illustrating to us what is missing. And so I guess... It's not showing up on the balance sheet of the People's Bank. Therefore, there must be some clandestine backdoor. Who knows?
1: Yeah. So there, that's there's something else going on here. That's really what we're saying. Is that's the point of the piece? Is that look, CNY is up, but the dollars are not showing up in the PBOC's hands. So something else is happening. It's not dollar inflows, or at least it's not dollar inflows as they were before 2014. The normal course of euro dollar expansion leading to Uh, investments and uh, dollar availability in China. Something else is happening. And because the PBOC isn't going to come out and tell us what's happening, we sort of have to go back and try to piece together what could be happening. And to me, the most plausible explanation is about this dollar backdoor. Now, what you're getting to here is what other people are saying. So why don't you scroll back up to the other one, the backdoor one. What that really is, instead of, yeah, up a little bit further, yeah, right there. So instead of selling, outright selling US treasuries and foreign reserve assets, which reduces the, the asset side of the balance sheet, they might have undertaken what we've called the Brazil strategy, which is employing derivatives, forwards, maybe even term repos, any number of things, where instead of liquidating assets and supplying dollars, the PBOC is actually borrowing dollars from the Eurodollar market, because the PBOC can go into the Euro dollar market, and get dollars that the, the, the market probably wouldn't supply private corporate Chinese uh, counterparties. So essentially it's still the bypass, but it's a bypass into the back door in a different way, and it wouldn't alter China's balance sheet. And I think the ev- the primary evidence for this particular scenario was the fact that, especially over the last couple of years, the level of foreign reserve assets reported by the People's Bank of China has been almost completely flat as if they're managing or targeting a specific balance, which is sort of a side effect that you would expect bureaucrats to use to guide themselves in this sort of PBOC, clandestine backdoor type of activity. They're, they're entering into forward contracts or giving their private banking system forward cover to go onto the Euro dollar market and subsidize their borrowing through this backdoor system. And all the while, the Chinese, instead of managing their currency, are, ma- are targeting their level of foreign reserves to tell them how much they should be doing. And then I had
0: skipped ahead a little bit too far to this graphic here, where you cross out some of these channels. And you were saying that this is what the
1: what is assumed is happening in the popular press? Yeah, some people have said, well, okay, yeah, we see that there's no dollars flowing, showing up on the Chinese uh, People's Bank of China's balance sheet, but maybe the dollars are showing up in China. They're just not being taken in by the central bank. In other words, the dollar inflows are taking place, but they're not, they're, they're, they're going, they're being purposefully diverted or being allowed to be purposefully diverted into the banking system's hand, or the banking system is keeping them offshore rather than importing them and using them internally, or any number of things that just doesn't involve dollars ending up in the PBOC's hands. Jeff, though, we do have a little bit of a problem, and
0: let me get to it. I suppose I don't need to show it on the graph, but the point is that the currency has paused in its appreciation uh, sometime around early January, and that's no coincidence. We've seen a number of things happen since January that indicate the reflation is
1: struggling. Or it's cha- something has changed. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Is we look at you go back to early January, you see a whole bunch of stuff where we think something has changed here, you, you know, especially going back to, you know, early November. The last couple of months of 2020 it seemed like dead set, un, unequivocal inflation in a lot of things, especially commodity prices, you know, inflation expectations and things like that. But then, you know, the dollar too, between uh, uh, early November and sort of the end of the year, it started falling again as well across a broad range of currencies. But then early January, now the dollar catches a bid, uh, CNY no longer rising, T-bill rates plummet. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are starting to say, yeah, if you look at the long end of the treasury curve or you know five-year tips, in inflation break evens, it looks like inflation has continued undeterred. But now we're starting to see some dollar indications that are that is very reminiscent of early 2018 again
0: it 's not just China, we see it as you point out in another article that the real has tipped or i 'm sorry tipped peaked and tipped over yeah any same number, time it's, period
1: it 's actually a broad if you look at the trade weighted u s dollar for example not just the not just the um, trade weighted emerging markets but even the even the one that includes the euro, the euro itself has mm-hmm. traded differently since around the same time and in fact, if you If you draw a chart with the Euro and CNY together over the last five years, they correspond very closely, not exactly in the short run, but over the long run, there's a very good correlation. So since the early part of January, we're seeing some things that say, okay, the PBOC is doing things in its back door and that has some other kinds of consequences too, because as we know in economics, there are always trade-offs. If the PBOC was gonna do the original bypass, which is to sell reserve assets, the trade-off was internal monetary constraint, which was a big problem in 2015 and 2016. So if the PBOC instead says, we're gonna target reserve levels, then there are trade-offs to that as well, which is if things start to go awry, as they did in early 2018, you really don't have much room or much margin for watching essentially helpless as the currency turns around and plummets again, which is exactly what happened in early 2018, CNY that had looked for a very long time as if it was, you know, unstoppable on its rise again. It's resurrection from its depths of late 2016, all of a sudden turned around almost 180 degrees and began to plummet, a breathtaking plummet that brought it down to, you know, essentially a a multi-year low by 2019. So if the Chinese are doing the same kind of thing now, and we're starting to see some risks rise as we've been talking about, not just you know specific to China, but globally, dollar system indications of illiquidity rising in many places, what is CNY's vulnerability with essentially the naked hollow backdoor in, in operation over the last seven, eight months? believe
0: it or not, Jeff, our most popular uh, audience or largest number of listeners, according to the statistics, is not in China, but in the United States. And so people in the United States might be saying, China, you know, well, I don't care, what does that affect me? And I heard that their PMI didn't do so well, guess what, our PMI did fabulous at this for the same time period. So too bad, China, we are decoupling from you, and you talk about PMIs, China, the United States, and more importantly, decoupling, and that this isn't the first time we've been through this story in an article called, There's Two Sides to Synchronize, posted on the 1st of March at Alhambra Partners. We don't have much time in this section, Jeff, uh so we won't get into the nitty gritty of it and go through each of the numbers, but basically decoupling the PMI in China's tipping downward. The PMI in the United States is surging higher. What?
1: Which, has this happened before? Well, it's actually a regular occurrence. In fact, it's it's almost a it's perfectly predictable. The Chinese economy seems to dip, tip downward before the U.S. economy by a matter of you know eight nine months, maybe to a year. So it's not at all uh, not at all unusual to see those two diverge. In fact, it's, it's, it's practically historical. That's, that's kind of how it happens. And really reflation and decoupling go hand in hand. But the point of that is though, when we start to hear decoupling when in the reflationary context, it's usually when reflation is starting to die out and change over to the next euro dollar global dollar shortage stage. So the fact that we're starting to talk about the decoupling already, At least, you know, initially, you know, this whispers of decoupling, you know, maybe there's a stumble in China. Now, by the way, today, the Chinese authorities announced that their official uh, official GDP target for 2019 or 2021 is going to be just 6%, which is a lot less than maybe a lot of people were thinking. So, again, we're starting to see eh, maybe things are not progressing in China as much as we had maybe many people had been expecting or hoped. And what that leads to is that Chinese go first. If the Chinese economy starts heading toward a downturn, you can pretty well expect that eventually the global economy will resynchronize in that direction, just as it had done in 2018. You know, Chinese PMIs were sinking early part of 2018, while US, especially the ISM, was soaring right through the middle and on into uh, early autumn before eventually the U S started to catch the same disease that had already ravaged the Chinese system. That's right in your article, you go over how this happened and you give numbers and
0: dates, how it happened in 2010, 2011, Eurodollar number two, Eurodollar number three in 2014, Eurodollar number four and at Eurodollar number four, well, it's tough when you're out there in the public and you say things you're going to get tripped up, but here we have Mohammed. L. Arian saying in addition to highlighting the strength of the US economy because the PMI was so strong this also points to a more general theme of divergence in advanced economies economic performance and policies well that was in September of 2018 i want to be the divergence
1: wouldn't last very much longer yeah Jeff- and that's really that's the the overall point reflation and decoupling go hand in hand that they, this happened this has happened every time except when you start to hear decoupling it already means something is already going wrong it's a trigger warning but in a different kind of way uh jeff just tell the people
0: the pmi that it came out in china right now it was a 51.4 and people if they hear that they'll say that's above 50 i know if the pmi scores above 50 that means expansion therefore china's expanding good jeff where does 51.4 mm. rank in the modern Chinese history.
1: I believe it's what the third or fourth lowest in their entire history. So it, it's really, it's not a good number by any stretch, nor is the, uh, the, um, the, the slope of the descent, it has lost something like six points in just two months. So what it indicates, and this is the non-manufacturing PMI put out by the National Bureau of St- uh, Statistics, which is the official government That's PMI, right. which That's suggests right. the internal Chinese economy has lost a significant amount of momentum almost, almost more momentum than was lost in early 2020. So it's, it's, it's a warning sign that, Hey, something's not right in the Chinese economy right now, and it's not COVID. That's right. The other times that this 51.4 was reached or breached was
0: February, 2020 and November and December 2008. Awful, awful months. Jeff, that's really bad news that it's the non-manufacturing PMI that's so bad because that 6% number that you mentioned for their GDP, that is based on the assumption that consumers are going to step in and spend some of the savings and some of the pent-up demand from the previous year and therefore the Chinese government won't have to be pressing the metal, the pedal to the metal on their infrastructure and real estate spending. So if this PMI is signaling that the people in China are not really feeling it, consumption demand, then it's possible that the government may need to do a U-turn and go back to the fixed asset investment spending and raising their their debt to GDP levels on unproductive investment, just to keep the lights on. I know
1: that they're counting on consumers to carry this year. Which they're not going to do, which they've already stated. Their no sharp turns policy essentially says, this is it folks, what you see is what you get. So if the China's going to do at best 6% GDP growth this year, which you and I were talking about earlier, they're going to hit 6% because they can do that. They can make their GDP whatever, whatever they want. But as we were saying, will it be legitimate 6%? I, I have my my doubts. And the downstream consequences of that for the rest of the global economy are much more severe than maybe most people anticipate, especially in the United States, because we think of ourselves as you know, an island unto our, an island unto its own economy when that's not really true. So if the Chinese are in a situation where they're basically telling us at the outset of 2021, that things aren't going all that well to start with. And we don't, even when they were going well, we didn't expect them to be all that well to begin with for this year. It's, it's a, you can understand why there might be growing risks being priced into these various markets around the euro dollar world. Let me just tease out one word that you mentioned there. You said
0: that it would, will it be a legitimate 6%? And I think that we both agree it will be a legitimate 6%. They will have 6% more economic activity than they had last year, but it will be unproductive activity. Uh, Do you you agree that that, that's that's what we mean by legitimate? It's not that they're lying, I think.
1: There's an artificiality to it. On top of the fact that 6% after last year means you're two years in a hole rather than getting back out of the one that you just dug out, dug, you're trying to dig yourself out of. So 6% in 2021 after doing only two or two and a half or 3% in 2020 means you're even further behind where you are supposed to be, according to Western economists and Western expectations. So the Chinese are only getting further and further behind, which causes again, enormous amounts of downstream problems through the rest of the, that ripple through the rest of the global economy. Western economists and Western expectations are for
0: some sort of inflationary fury to take place right now. And I wonder if the. Treasury Department may be picking up the phone and calling the central bank, the Fed, and saying, you know, we don't like where these uh, treasury yields are going. Maybe you can do something to take care of that, maybe some yield curve control. That's kind of what we're going to talk about in part three. So, dear audience, stick around for that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, within the past few weeks, the European Central Bank, some important executives, including Lagarde came out and issued some statements saying, we don't like where these sovereign bond yields are going, and they're not going to be going that direction. We can assure you of that. So it was sort of a de facto yield curve control statement. Don't think about it, market. That's what they were saying. And Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners. In a recent article, you wrote an essay for Real Clear Markets that's called "There's Precedent for Yellen Demanding a Central Bank Rescue," and you posted that on the fifth of March. You take us back to an example of when something like this happened in the United States, when the Treasury Department said, "We've got bills to pay, a lot of them. We're taking on a lot of debt. We're." We're, we've got a new deal and these yields are rising and we don't like that. So you, Central Bank, do something about that. Jeff, uh, tell us the story. Where do we begin?
1: Yeah, the, the yields are rising. The the, fe- the federal government was borrowing enormously to try to stimulate the economy out of an enormous contraction. And the recovery was, was taking place, at least they thought it was taking place and starting to gain speed and they wanted to keep it going. And the last thing anybody wanted was to have problems and interest rates. I didn't want interest rates to rise to spoil the fund before it got going too far, before it got going far enough to lead into a full and sustainable recovery, which should sound really familiar to (laughs) people right now. I don't know what this is not, we're not talking talking about. about,
0: Yeah. Are you talking about today? Because the, the, some employment data came out that was supposed to be super, really, really good. And the treasury uh, bonds sold off again. So this sounds like you're talking about today.
1: Right, rising yields, inflation, recovery, massive spending, don't want to spoil the part the Fed monetizing the debt, all this stuff, but it, it's not 2021, it was 1937. In 1937, in March 1937, all of a sudden, seeming not quite out of nowhere because they, they kind of knew it was coming, but you saw T-bill yields rise rapidly from you know be, between 15 and 20 basis points up to as high as almost 60 in a matter of a couple months. And that spilled over into long-term treasury rates too, where in a couple of weeks, the 10-year, or not the 10-year, but what they had is a long-term benchmark yield back then rose from around 240 or so up until, up into 280, almost 290. So you had a spike in yields that had Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau on the phone with Federal Reserve Chairman Mariner Echols saying, look, pal, we need you to buy some bonds and cap these yields before they go too far.
0: I'm going to read a read a quote here. It was not apparently well received as Morgenthau and his staff immediately withdrew and returned later to demand, my word, your word, a, a more concrete proposal about what the Fed was going to do to counteract the firming of long-term interest rates, which he, Morgenthau, felt was attributable solely to Federal Reserve action.
1: Uh, what action? Well, first of all, the the meeting that I was f- referring to there was after Morgenthau called Eccles. He said, "Look, you guys are coming over here on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and we're going to have a powwow about this market stuff and Treasury yields rising, which we don't want. And you're going to tell me what you're going to do about it." And Federal Reserve staff came over there, senior staff, and said, "Well, we'll buy a couple bonds. We'll do some limited bond buying." in which, as, as the uh, the transcript of the or the, uh, the minutes of the meeting describe they left the room for a couple of minutes and came back with probably not not very happy looks on their faces and said, no, that's not good enough. We want to know what the hell you're going to do about these rising yields. And yes, they did. They blamed, they said, look, this is your fault. Because in in the middle of 1936, the Federal Reserve, along with pretty much everyone, started to get really worried, not about the economy and recovery stumbling, but rather because it was looking inflationary. Like, you know, we've had rapid monetary growth or what we call rapid monetary growth over the last couple of years since the bottom. We see wholesale prices rising often rapidly. The economy seems; people are going back to unemployment rates, dropping all of these positive things. And really when we step back, step back and look at what we've done to get this economy moving from the trough of the Great Depression, which is an enormously huge contraction, we created a hell of a lot of money at least in the form of bank reserves. The level of bank reserves had nearly tripled from the bottom in 1932-33. The Fed's balance sheet had expanded. I think it was almost double its size. and we'll these are through un- the numbers. Yeah. Okay. Let's... These are unprecedented. If you want to run through the numbers, I think it's worthwhile. I want to. I yeah, want go to. ahead.
0: Okay. Okay. Let me flip the page here. Okay. Let's see here. So Going back to the start of 1930 at the outset of the great collapse the banking system claimed 25.1 billion in loans. Oh before which, that
1: go go to the uh, the level of the balance sheet expansion.
0: Okay, in 1932 total assets of oh, be- 6.1 billion is that the right one or do I have that wrong?
1: No go back further.
0: Um, if we look Here, at i will dance. You find it. I'll read it. Okay. I'm going to read some more right, so terrible sentences. In
1: 1933, okay. the Federal Reserve had about $640 million in uh, government bonds on its balance sheet. That's because th- those are earning assets for the Fed. The Fed needs bonds. Otherwise, you know, it'll cost the Treasury to operate its system. Um, in just eight months, those first eight months of 1933, or the first eight months of that, that period, they expanded the government bonds on their balance sheet from $640 million to $1.4 billion. And that, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but back then these were enormous quantities. And then in the middle of 1934, they did it again, sort of a a QE2 during the Great Depression, where they they increased the volume of government securities in their stock to 2 billion by March, March 1935. And then there was a QE3 in October of 35, which raised another 450 million. So they added about one point seven billion dollars in, in um, government bonds to their asset side, which offsetting that on the liability side, they increased the level of bank reserves in banks deposit accounts by one point seven billion. But the vast majority of the monetary growth during that period was from gold flows because remember FDR devalued the dollar which invited do, which invited uh, private holdings of gold to flow into the United States so in one thousand nine hundred and thirty two the Federal Reserve said, look, we've got 3.3 billion, billion in our own reserves, which include mostly gold in total assets of 6.1 billion. So the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was 6.1 billion and in 32. By 1937, they had 9 billion in reserves, most of which was gold. while total assets had grown to more than 13 billions. So they had, you know, they had more than doubled the size of their balance sheet, which is, you know, sort of like what the Federal Reserve has done over the last dozen years. And that was their focus right they were looking at what happened in
0: their balance sheet and they thought that compared along with what we're seeing in the economy suggests an inflationary fire yes. can't Look, we, be too we, we far away the
1: level of bank reserves that banks have it went from two and a half billion to around seven and a half billion and so we're looking i mean that's if you're a federal reserve guy you're thinking that's massive monetary expansion and now we're seeing things start to recover So we, instead of worrying about 1932 again, in in 1936, we're going to start worrying about 1940, looking like out of control, under fire inflation. And so they decided as early as 1935, they raised the prospect of, hey, We might need to do something because we've we've created too much money. There's too much money. There's too much federal government activity. The feds are going in overdrive. The New Deal 2.0 is coming, you know, 1936 election forward. Roosevelt won his second term and promised to do even more. It was looking like, you know, there was no way we could possibly avoid an inflationary uh, situation unless we do something right away, which they decided in 36 they were going to raise the reserve requirement because if we've got seven and a half billion in reserves, rather than allow banks to ever use them, we'll lock up a bunch of them so that they can't. And that will, that will uh, cut off this inflationary. It will nip this inflation in the bud before it ever becomes a problem.
0: And now we're getting to the numbers that I jumped to earlier on, which I think are the most exciting numbers here, which is the, I think the theme of Eurodollar University is that yes, here's the central bank. They're doing crazy things, but here all around is the private banking system and it's doing something completely different. And why doesn't the central
1: bank ever look at what's yeah, happening? I mean, those two in things are related, space. right? Because everything else is, is under disarray. Everything else is in disarray and not working. That's why the central bank is doing crazy things. It's not because they're printing money. It's they're reacting to the same thing and saying, we need to do something. And so I think these, all these things actually do fit together really well. Jeff, quick question. Philosophically, why was the
0: central bank wanting to be ahead of any inflationary pressure? Were they just scared that it would go from 1%, 2%, 8%, 16%, 32%? I guess maybe Germany just a few a decade ago, I guess maybe that's what they were worried about. But even today, right now, we it's in the news, it's in our financial media. There's a lot of talk about. President Biden's stimulus and how large it'll be, and maybe it'll be inflationary. Why don't we hold back a little bit? Why, why the urge to step in now before seeing the actual results? Is inflation going to run
1: away? I... No, the central banks have an inherent inflationary bias, and any deflationary bias didn't come about until the 60s. Remember, back in, during the Great Depression, they really didn't know what caused it. And at the time, they didn't think there was really a monetary component to it. And hmm. so it was, in terms of monetary policy, it's always looking at inflation. And again, as you just pointed out, the German experience in the early 20s, the Weimar experience with hyperinflation, that was fresh in everyone's mind, especially for monetary policymakers were thinking, that's our job. Our job is to keep inflation away. This This contraction, depression stuff, maybe that's not us. We don't really know. And so in the middle of the 1930s, they weren't thinking we're going to cause more deflation. They thought our job is to prevent inflation. And we're starting to see the buildup in inflationary pressures because we don't really know our job that well. We don't really know what it is we do. Right. Yeah, but, but okay,
0: you're seeing a buildup in inflationary pressures, but not you're assuming. inflation. Why, right, why the assumption? Why? That's my question. Does inflation run away? Is it unstoppable? Or why not wait to see it taking place, then step in?
1: The idea is that you have to be ahead of the curve because if, if, you, if you wait until you actually see the inflationary pressures become obvious, it's too late, too late. And that's always been the, right. the even now, that's, that's always been the operative uh, assumption for monetary policy is that especially in this era of expectations policy, you have to lead. You can't wait to see the inflation because by the time you see it, it's too late. And it's been it's been a, a part of the central bank ethos for a very 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 long time. How about we come up with a new policy? If you're in a depression,
0: you wait to see it. You see the whites of their eyes, and then it's well, kind of
1: average inflation target, right? That's the Fed is starting to say. Look, you know, oh. we're we don't admit we're in a depression. We admit we're in an inflation shortfall. And to try to get out of it, we're saying we're, going to not, we're not going to react until we actually see it, we need to react. That's really what average inflation targeting is, is the Fed is trying to make sense of these two, what it used to think are a contradictory situation, but it really is consistent. The Fed doesn't do money, doesn't understand its job, and that's why we have an inflation shortfall, and thus produces this latest turn, which is, oh, we have to see inflation before we actually do anything. But that was certainly not what they were thinking in 1936 and 37. They became more and more convinced that inflation was absolutely certain to happen and we better do something big before it does. Because, and As you're about to get to with the numbers, yeah. they had all the information in front of them that said, nah, you guys are, you're tilting at windmills here. That's the point you make. You're saying this data that we're about to, to
0: bring up was available to them.
1: Well, but- it comes from the Federal Reserve. This is Federal Reserve compiled data.
0: Okay, so this is the punchline of the the article. So, going back to the start of 1930 at the outset of the great collapse, the banking system which Jeff and I feel is the primary creator of money claimed 25.1 billion in loans of which 4.1 billion was various government
1: obligations.
0: No, in addition
1: 4.1. So it was 25 billion in loans as well as 4 billion in uh, government obligations very well okay then at
0: the bottom in march 1933 banks reported just 12.9 billion in loans but interestingly enough an increase in government securities to 6.9 so they went from 25.1 to loans to 12.9 but government obligations from 4.1 to 6.9. Now, here we are in March 1937. They claimed 13.7 billion in loans. And again, this is the banking system. So 13.7 with 12.7 in various
1: treasuries. Do I have all that right? Yep. So loans essentially collapsed by half, which was the great contraction, the devastating mm-hmm. deflationary consequences of the Great Depression. And then afterward, during what was supposed to be a recovery, there was barely any recovery in lending at all, while the banking system was only too happy to buy up whatever the government was selling, which, again, should sound very familiar. (laughs) Well, why were they – we talked about this, I suppose, and you bring
0: up a great example here of a a quote. Let me read this quote here, and it explains why they were buying government securities. They were also buying not just government securities – In this quote, in discussing the motion, Governor Norris pointed out that while action was not necessary, it was highly desirable as the excess reserves constituted a source of danger. And as an example, he indicated that even now there was some evidence of inflationary results from the excess reserves, especially in the bond market, where a two and three quarters bond of a rural county seat could be sold at a premium, meaning you know, junk bonds were being bought at a premium. Why were government securities and junk bonds being bought at a premium? Why did,
1: why did the, the simple fact that they were bonds, they were saleable. They had a liquid marketplace and that's really, you know, the, the interest rate fallacy personified, especially in governor Norris's case, where he misunderstood the signal the market was telling him, the market was saying, look, we're so fearful of another liquidity event, we'll buy even junk bonds because it's a bond. It's not a loan. A loan is illiquid. You can't sell it. You, you can only call them in and hope that whoever you've lent money to repays you in, in, in a sufficient quantity that you can stay afloat, whereas a government bond or a municipal bond or even a junk corporate bond has a liquid marketplace where maybe you don't get 100 cents on the dollar if you're forced to sell, but you at least can sell the thing. So the banking system was telling the Fed, "We don't want to lend. We refuse to lend. In fact, we only want the highly high, highly liquid instruments," which led to market interest rates falling and falling and falling and falling, going lower, which they misinterpreted as stimulus, inflation, positive positive things, when we know full well that it was exactly the opposite. It was deflationary circumstances which under 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 undercut any inflationary probability. And then had they understood just that raw data, I mean, not even granular data, but just that high level raw data from the banking system and what the banks were telling them. And there's more detail to that too. If we get into the correspondence system and the way money flows throughout this, throughout the, uh, the, uh, the banking system to begin with, there was all sorts of warning signs where the banks are telling them, look, things are not right here. Things are not going well here. And so, you know the idea that they needed to get ahead of an inflationary curve they were they were tilting at windmills they were they're fighting inflation pressures that just didn't exist but from the perspective of the central bank that looks at an inflationary bias and says we just printed a bunch of money therefore it must be inflationary because the level of bank reserves have expanded so massively you know You could understand why they would make that mistake even though you shouldn't have any sympathy for them making their mistake because that's their job their job is to understand these things and make wise choices not to just focus on the number of bank reserves and interpret interpret ghosts of things that aren't possible that's i was
0: going to read something similar to what you just said i thought it was very very well put the over infatuation with bank reserves during the 1930s was itself a consequence of bureaucrats knowing only their numbers rather than the complete extent of their jobs. Jeff, it sounds like not 1930, but 2021. Banks are saying there's a problem. We're seeing it. We're hearing it from every angle. Um, But we'll see if the bureaucrats will get it right this time. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover
1: in this article that you wanted to uh, bring up? The only thing is that, look, you know, when when Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz wrote their monetary history in 1963, which provided these monetary links to the Great Depression, among the things they cited was the fact that, again, central bankers didn't know their jobs. In fact, they even said that monetary scholarship had reached a low point in the period of the 1920s, that we shouldn't have even expected central bankers to know a damn thing about money to begin with. You know, what I would say is that, look. Ever since Milton Friedman wrote those words with Anna Schwartz in 63, we've repeated it, especially from the 1980s forward. Economics and and central bankers have let monetary scholarship just drop by the wayside in favor of positive economics and econometrics, which doesn't even include a monetary financial component in most DSGE models to begin with. And so here we have, before we even get to 2008, the same kind of situation where central bankers pretend they know what they're doing, but they really don't. And so, ever since we, the, the immediate consequences of that was in 2007, 2008, as well as the aftermath, where we get again this idea that the economy's recovery may be even inflationary during these inflationary periods because of the level of bank reserves. But it never turns out that way because the level of bank reserves are not the complete story, nor would I think, nor do I believe them um, um, an important part of it to begin with. If only we had a scholar, a monetary scholar
0: who had reviewed all this and had promised to Mr. Friedman and Mrs. Schwartz that they weren't gonna let this happen again, not on their watch. Oh well, I guess that's, that didn't happen. All right, Jeff, well, I, I guess I've taken too many pot shots at Mr. Berninke and I should sign off before we go even further down that rabbit hole. I had a great time, let's do it again next
1: week. Okay, take care Emil.